0: Case number 22-1280, United States of America versus Tashaun Omar Jones. Oral argument not to exceed. Fifteen minutes per side. Amanda
1: Bashi, for the appellant, you may proceed.
2: Good morning. Good
1: morning. May it please the court. My name is Amanda Bashi. I'm here on behalf of the appellant, Tashawn Jones, and I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal. Very well. The government bore the burden at Tashawn Jones' sentencing, of proving the guideline enhancements applied beyond a preponderance, I'm sorry, by a preponderance of the evidence. In response to Jones's objections, the government offered little to nothing to meet that burden in the District Court. It now asks for a free pass here to meet its burden on appeal despite that waiver below. This Court's precedent does not support… What is
3: support. the relief that you're asking for?
1: Mr. Jones is asking for his sentence to be reversed.
3: But he agreed to a plea agreement, like a C1C plea agreement, right? So he agreed to 10 years. So he wants to get out of the plea agreement now? I mean, is, did he? Did, do you want to withdraw the plea?
1: Mr. Jones um, would like the district court to first correctly calculate the guidelines that applied in his case. The district court tethered the analysis of the reasonableness of the plea agreement, To the particular guidelines calculated by probation, and those guidelines were significantly higher than what Mr. Jones argued they were in the
3: right. But that's what I don't get about this case. Um, He thought he should get. He thought the proper calculation was five years, let's say. He agreed, nevertheless, to take ten years, and in the C1C agreement, so. What would change? I just I don't understand what would change here. You would go back, he would still agree to the ten years, and but you would argue to the court that the guideline range is different, with the result being what?
1: Well the ten year negotiation was based on the party's presumption that he qualified for a fifteen year mandatory sentence under the Armed Career Criminal Act. That presumption now, given developments in the case law, may not be, there there may not be a 15 year mandatory minimum that applies. And so, in the court's acceptance of the Type C plea agreement and the reasonableness of that agreement, um, that 15 year sentence loomed large. um, Doesn't that always
0: um, hold true where there is a negotiated plea? That it, that everybody knows. Yeah, something might change in the meantime, but this is where we are today, and I, I think it's a good deal. Which Mister Jones apparently said, "Yep, I'll take it."
1: I think if we look to, and I'm the sure he wasn't thrilled about it, but he did right? He did accept – yes, he did sign the plea. Yes. I think if we look to the Supreme Court's guidance in Hughes, where it discusses the importance of a correct guideline determination in the reasonableness of as
0: – a, As a threshold.
1: Yeah. Yes, as a threshold, even in the context of a type C plea agreement where the parties have reached a, a mutual decision on the question of what an appropriate sentence is, the district court still has a duty – to evaluate that sentence in light of the of the correct guideline range, and also can reject the plea agreement because it's not reasonable, and so that's something that Mr. Jones could ask for in the district court if, if this court were to remand.
0: Similar to Judge Griffin's question, I mean, or Judge Now and asked you procedurally, where are we now? You know that those are seem to be worthwhile arguments, but. What was filed here procedurally? What, what were you? What's pending before this bench? You'd like to go. You want a remand? Yes. Okay. What is your grounds for getting one? Your best grounds for getting a remand: the change in the law. Is that it?
1: The best grounds for getting a remand, or that his
0: achieving that from this court because yes. we can't fix your sentence, right?
1: With, correct. Right. Were that the guidelines were incorrectly. Um, calculated okay, calculated. and that the government didn't meet its burden, didn't even really try to meet its burden in the district court um, on these particular guideline enhancements.
2: But then the bottom line is you, on remand, you would not want the district court to accept the plea agreement? Is that, I mean, the practicality is what? Do you want to get out of the plea agreement?
1: I think both parties would, would potentially have the right in the district court to, to um, get out of the plea agreement. The district court itself would, able to reject the plea agreement
2: i know but if if then we remand it is it a futile exercise i mean we okay we we agree with you that the guidelines were miscalculated so we'll remand it then uh, then you go back to district court and say well i still want you to enforce our plea agreement what what have we accomplished i mean it's been it's a futile exercise isn't
1: it i think that um this court's case uh the rosales case discusses that um, it's important for the guidelines to be appropriately calculated and to give the district court that opportunity to tether the agreed-upon sentence to the correct guideline range, even if it seems likely. I think that's what the, the words of the Rosales Court use. Even if it seems likely that the district court is going to go ahead and impose the same sentence, it's necessary from a procedural uh, reasonableness perspective to give the district court that opportunity, particularly where the district court was equivocal on the record. And that's what we have here. The record here shows that the district court specifically tethered the probation calculated guidelines when deciding whether the sentence was reasonable.
2: Yeah, I hear the district court at first implied that the guideline scoring didn't make any difference because there was a plea agreement and the sentence seemed reasonable. Then then at the the end, the district court made kind of an ambiguous statement, but if things change, come on back and I'll take another look at it, which did create kind of an ambiguity,
1: I think. Yes, I think there's ambiguity exactly in that statement and also in the statement where the district court um, imposes the sentence and specifically references.
2: Okay, well, assuming it makes a difference here, let's talk about your your claims of error as to the enhancements. Uh, You've got the one about the the recklessness uh, (coughs) uh, in danger uh, creating a substantial likelihood of bodily injury or or harm regarding fleeing of the police officer. You've got the recklessness enhancement. Then you've got the other enhancement as to the Michigan controlled substance offense. So let's talk about those and Yes. Why you think those are reversible errors?
1: Thank you. I'll first address um, what a controlled substance offense is under the guidelines. Okay. Um, Mr. Jones argued below, as he does in this appeal, that in applying the categorical approach, the Michigan drug schedules sweep more broadly than the federal drug schedules when it comes to cocaine and heroin. Specifically, he argued that Michigan law covers isomers of heroin and cocaine that the federal drug schedules do not cover. And so those offenses categorically could not qualify as controlled substance offenses to enhance his guideline range. And I think importantly, the government had the burden of showing that this enhancement applied in the district court.
3: But isn't it just, there's two aspects to this argument, it seems to me. One is kind of the legal aspect, whether we can look at state law The other one is kind of the science aspect, right? Is it actually broader or not broader? I take it on the second one. It's dependent on evidence, expert testimony, things about essentially organic chemistry that I probably don't know. But it seems like the record is lacking on that. The first ground, though, I assume we can – simply decide it's just a matter of decide interpreting the guideline right is it is the state definition of controlled substance something that we
1: can look at right That's correct and actually it's something this court has looked at already um, Well
3: we've looked at it in some unpublished cases but I don't think we have a case a published case directly on point right
1: I think we have published cases that are quite close to on point but but you're correct there's no controlling case i think um, the two cases that come to mind most importantly are jackson and clark in um, jackson the court was unequivocal that when determining the definition of a guidelines term particularly um, what is the was the text of this same guideline here mean, when they say controlled substance offense, we look to the Controlled Substances Act. Um, And it supported that conclusion well, referencing... But the
3: guideline says federal or state law. I mean, the guideline says federal or state law. It says controlled substance. It doesn't make any specific cross-reference to the Controlled Substances Act. We know that in other parts of the guidelines... If, they, if, they, if the commission wanted to incorporate a specific federal provision, it does it by name. It didn't do it here. I, I, why does that not all just point to looking at the state law on a, for what a controlled substance is?
1: Well, I think um, the reasoning and the analysis in Jacks- Jackson is quite useful to this question. Um, one of the things that they look at specifically is the directive from Congress in Section 994, which specifically references the career offender guideline. Um, and it, it addresses that the career offender status result from two or more prior felonies, each of which is described in Section 401 of the Controlled Substances Act. So we have that directive from Congress explicitly referencing that the career offender guideline, which is the same guideline language at issue here, is tethered to the Controlled Substances Act. I think where there is a directive like that, we don't need the guidelines to tell us where we should look.
0: These are interesting arguments that really weren't fleshed out at the district court, were they? That's correct. Isn't that, I mean, that kind of argues for this court not getting into the weeds when it hasn't been, re- it never was properly argued. Could it be argued that it's forfeited? Yes. Um, or we, or we're getting to harmless error here because it's undecided. And why would this court reach out to try and work out a circuit split? I mean, it's probably
1: not the case for that,
0: is it, counsel?
1: Well, I think, um, Mr. Jones, presented the argument well, and it and he presented it at three different points in the district court. But, Judge Cook, you're correct. The government did not really respond. Um, instead, the government kind of encouraged the district court that it need not resolve any guideline disputes. Um, and so we don't really have the record necessary. Um, I do think, though, to Judge Nalbandian's point, that there's a first issue of statutory construction and principles of statutory interpretation that this court can address. Um, we need not get into the weeds of chemistry in order to do that. And that is the, the argument um, that Mr. Jones...
2: Uh, is your argument that we need to apply the law from the career offender of offenses to here, even though it's not directly applicable?
1: The um, guideline that was directly a- applicable turns to the definition in 4B 1.2. I'm colloquially uh, colloquially, eh, colloquially calling that the career offender guideline. That is where the definition um, of controlled substance offense references to um, for the guideline that applied to Mr. Jones.
2: Okay. Um, I know you're out of time, but I do want you to talk about the other enhancements as to – I want to call it reckless endangerment, but it's actually recklessness
1: of... During flight.
2: During flight. Know, it's, a much <laughs> it's, it's, it's much longer. It's much longer one, It's more particular.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, I, I, I think there's an issue there. So do you want to talk about that just for a couple minutes?
1: Yes. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. I think the question before the court at this point is, is solely one of law. And it's are the facts that are in the Rule 11 plea agreement and the revised pre-sentence report are those facts sufficient to show that mr jones recklessly created a substantial risk of death or serious bodily injury during the course of his flight and the you know reading the facts of the plea agreement and the psr it is a very brief period that he is in flight and this court's case law requires that the government tether a specific aspect of the flight to a specific risk.
2: When does the flight occur? I mean, he he was shooting his 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 gun when the police arrived, and then I think he brandished the weapon when they arrived, and then he then he took off and barricaded himself in the house. I mean, is that is that right? Uh,
1: there's no um, factual uh, s- basis that he brandished the weapon um, when the police arrived. They, they, the police contend that he had fired. They witnessed him fire one shot into the air, but then when he saw police, he ran into the home without brandishing the weapon, pointing the weapon, or firing the weapon at anyone.
2: Okay, so was his firing of the weapon part of his flight too, or or not? Is that I mean, I, I I I'm a little concerned of what what facts we consider. Uh, I guess in the uh, in the course of fleeing the the police or the law enforcement, I guess the, the enhancement refers to creating the risk of death or serious bodily injury in the course of fleeing. So
1: that's right, and and so he did not flee until he saw police. At that point, he had not he did not. There's no indication, no allegation that he raised the firearm, that he, he pointed at anyone. Um, so
2: the way you interpret the facts, he didn't really do anything other than run into the House and barricade <laughs> himself.
1: Exactly, and that's not just the way I interpret okay. the facts. That's the facts in the Rule 11 and that the parties agreed to at the same time. All right,
2: well, just the act of barricading himself in the House, uh, d- doesn't that create a uh, a risk of, serious injury and bodily injury of just the barricading?
1: I think the term barricading came from the officer who declared that he had barricaded himself. He did refuse to come out. I don't know that that is uh, equivalent to barricading oneself in a home.
3: But he had fired the They saw him fire the gun, didn't they?
1: Prior to fleeing, yes.
3: But, I mean, he fires the gun. That he doesn't throw it away or nobody says he throws it away. He takes the gun that he's just fired and goes back in the house and refuses to come back out. And he's got the gun in the house. He's
2: hunkered down there.
1: That's correct. I think it's more analogous to the court's cases where armed flight, which is exactly what we have here, is not sufficient to show that there is a, uh, that he recklessly created a risk of serious bodily injury or death.
2: Okay, you have a, is there a case from the Ninth Circuit?
1: Um, there is a case from the Ninth Circuit that we that we uh, cited in the district court, yes. That,
2: that's, it says that you need more than just barricading. Does that have a weapon there, too, or not?
1: Um, that was a firearm case. Um, I think the, the point of that case was that the risk is not one that is a result of police action. And so what we have in this case is the officers determine that it's a barricaded um, gunman situation, and they make that declaration. Um, So the analogy in the district court on this case was we have the officers making this declaration. It's not something that the defendant himself did that created a specific risk that is attached to a specific aspect of his flight.
2: Okay. So is that the best authority, the Ninth Circuit? (laughs) You have some other authority you want us to look at.
1: I think this court's authority in Brooks and Mukes are um, are also very good authority because what we have here is the government really not relying on anything else other than this one to two sentence description that the parties agreed upon, and that under Mukes and Brooks is not enough. Um, under this, you know, Mukes, Brooks, and this court's line of cases saying that uh, a specific aspect of the flight must be linked to a specific risk. We just don't have that here.
2: All right, you'll have your uh, rebuttal.
1: Thank you.
4: Three minutes rebuttal, yep. Good morning. Good morning, may it please the court, uh, Mark Chastain for the United States. Uh, before we get uh, too far into the argument, I'd just like to note that there is a motion pending before this court to take judicial notice of Mr. Uh, Jones' prior conviction document. The court has not yet ruled on that and I'd ask the court to grant that motion.
0: But would it what would it help us how would it help us counsel
4: it would narrow certainly narrow the facts of uh, 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 the questions before this court as far as what controlled substances need to be considered uh, if we move beyond the match the question of whether a match is needed, needed. Um, so uh, why, we'll, was it, why wasn't that stuff filed in the district court at, at the time the um, I, I guess that we gets to the next Point that I'd like to make, uh, Judge Novandi, and I think that is that what we've heard today sort of significantly overstates the record in this case in terms of what was presented to the district court. All that Mr. Jones did was cite the Lofton case, an unpublished decision by Judge Tarnow that had to do with cocaine. Uh, did the, Mr. Uh, Jones did not present any expert testimony or any well, affidavits well, how, or
3: reports. A Who had the burden?
4: The, the Government did and I think the government he didn't present any expert. that's that's correct and the government instead cited binding or cited an unpublished case but that that also incorporates an a published case the Thomas case from this court saying you
3: didn't cite anything on point. I'm I guess I'm I'm wondering I mean this question about whether it's a state law or federal law, you know controlled substance definition all right let's assume we can reach that, it's a legal issue, it came up in the court below. If we were to agree with them that we have to look at the federal definition only, um, at that point, we don't have any evidence, right? And you had the burden on that issue. So we would be,
4: basically they would prevail on that issue, wouldn't they? No, not if the, if the court grants um, uh, the judicial notice as it's done in many other cases, most recently in, in the Butts case, which is a published decision from uh, just last year, in which the court does did accept.
3: But if the, let's say we grant the judicial notice, and it's the, which narrows it to heroin, is that what it does? That's correct. Okay. Um, so we narrow it to, to the heroin. Is there no argument? I thought that was the argument that the heroin definition was the one that was broader. I mean, I know there's a cocaine de- uh, argument too, but I thought it was there is an argument that the isomers or whatever don't match on heroin. Is that right? They,
4: they certainly make that argument, and uh, okay, but we don't have any. We it would be
3: very difficult for us to evaluate the. The guts of the science of that argument on this record, I take it.
4: I think that the court, any court can always look at the decisions of another court and the reasons for that court. And that's why we cited the Bell case in our brief. Judge Beckering in the Western District of of Michigan uh, undertook uh, uh, an exhaustive review of the experts in this and came to the legal conclusion that the Michigan statute is not broader than the federal statute uh, as to heroin. And Judge Jarbo also reviewed that same evidence, that same testimony, those same expert opinions by Doctors Denmark and Dr. Dudley and came to that same legal conclusion. And so that's why we've cited those in our brief is that this court can then also look to those courts and the reasons they arrived at that conclusion and make its own determination that on the three
3: is it a legal conclusion? I mean, I guess it's ultimately a legal conclusion, but aren't there just factual questions about the science?
4: I think that the, the science uh, informs the technical words in the statute. And on the three isomers, and, and this appeal is limited to those three isomers that they raised, actually the, for the first time in their, their brief on on appeal, uh, the pseudo-iso, pseudo-heroin, Uh, beta isoheroin and gamma isoheroin, the courts in the Western District of Michigan have concluded that as a matter of law, those are covered by federal law as well as Michigan law. So on that narrow issue, this court can look to those issues, to those decisions by other courts, which were informed by technical expertise in defining these terms to determine that there is no overbreadth problem. Um,
0: So, so the argument is that it's district court precedent that in, was informed by experts. Correct. Right. That's that's the argument. That Correct. That, so now that is the law to the extent there is some. It's district court.
4: So the, to the extent the law has been developed in this in the circuit on this issue, it's been in district court cases. And it is pending in other district court cases, and that's why, one reason why we would urge this court to reach the issue uh, if it feels is appropriate, because it does have a, a wide impact potentially on um, not just career offender, uh, recidivist sentencing, but armed career criminal and enhanced sentences under the Controlled Substance Act. Well, let
3: me ask, uh, armed career criminal doesn't have the state or federal law phrase, does it?
4: It, in fact, specifically refers to federal law. The definition of a... Of the, of a right. So the argument for using
3: state law, I think, is stronger in this context than it is for the Armed Career Criminal Act context.
4: Is that right? Well, both both rely on prior convictions under state law. Um, but I think under Armed Career Criminal and enhanced sentencing under the Controlled Substance Act, There's no dispute that the substance would have to be regulated under federal law. It's where we get to the guidelines issue where where there isn't a match, there is not a match required. Right. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying is I think anything that
3: we say here on that legal issue doesn't necessarily inform the Armed Career Criminal Act.
4: It would depend on the court's ruling, certainly. But your,
3: your position, I take it, is we don't need to get into the science or any of that. The, it's just a simple question of uh, statutory construction, and we can look to the state law um, on what a controlled substance is, just like you know some of the other circuits. Of, I think the majority of the other circuits have done, right? Absolutely. Um, and that we should just kind of – I don't know, come out that way, we don't wouldn't need to deal with whether it's broader or not broader, and that would take care of it, I assume, in your mind?
4: That would definitely take care of it because the, the match issue, whether the federal and state statutes align, would not be uh, an issue under 4B1.2B if the court were defined as the majority of circuits have found that uh, it is not tied to federal The federal definition.
3: I mean, isn't it odd though that we would? I mean, we're basically applying a federal guideline. This looks federal. Why wouldn't we naturally look at the Controlled Substances Act to see what a controlled substance is? I mean, why would they? Why would the commission leave it to everybody, every state, to define heroin or cocaine or whatever it is?
4: Because the I think the plane as the, as uh Judge Nelbani and you pointed out earlier, uh it does not have that language and so we should not incorporate into the guideline language that's that's not there and that's what some of the other circuits have pointed out as well. In fact, as we point out in our brief uh originally the guideline as promulgated did refer to federal uh the federal controlled substance act and that was ultimately taken out by the commission in 1989 so in effect what mr jones is asking this court to do is to put a reference back into the guideline that the sentencing commission took out uh and this, this issue by the way I,
3: can't, I don't remember is this one of the issues that the commission was just recently purporting to deal with and did not deal with?
4: In January, they did ask for comment on that. They had proposed uh, guideline amendments that went both ways. They asked for comment on one that said specifically it does include and another one that said it does not inc- or, or include state law and another one that says it's only federal law. Uh, they promulgated that in January. And the latest um, proposed amendments that came out uh, earlier this month they did not include those proposed amendments.
3: they did not.
4: But instead, I will note that they did include a proposed amendment this April to the guideline to specifically reference some maritime drug offenses under Title 46. So, again, clearly the commission knows if it wants the guideline to specifically incorporate and be limited by federal law, it knows how to do that. It's, in fact, proposing to do that in another context with this batch of amendments.
3: Yeah, but, I mean, I don't know which way any of it cuts. They know there's a circuit split. The Supreme Court has said it, or, you know, justice, two justices have said it. The commission knows that they have, they purported, you know, they have basically promulgated a guideline that would do either one of the two, and then they didn't decide,
4: right? <laughs> so. That's um, In the meantime, the, the courts uh, need to decide the issue, but it could change, obviously, if, if the commission decides to adopt one of the other uh, guidelines, uh, amendments, which is why we think it is important for the court to, to consider the underlying substantive issue um, a, as uh, the litigation percolates throughout the district court's uh, certainly, in in Michigan, and provide um, provide some guidance because, uh, like I said, the, the guideline the amendments uh, could change this and make this a necessary um, a necessary question uh, very soon. Um, I'd like to just address a few points that um, uh, that uh, Ms. Bashi made in her argument. Um, she said that uh, Judge Strain tethered. His determination of the reasonableness of the 10-year sentence to the guidelines, and that's that's really an overstatement of the record. Uh, In fact, Judge uh, Drain, when taking the plea agreement, was told that the guidelines, as calculated by the parties at that point, were less than half of the 10-year sentence that the parties had agreed to, and told Mr. Jones that uh, he intended to go forward with the 10-year sentence.
3: Well, this, I mean, this kind of goes to the question of, like, I guess harmless error, right? Right. I guess my hang up on this or concern on this issue is his he made a specific statement about if go up to the Sixth Circuit and if it changes come back. Right? Yeah. I mean it was yeah. something like that. And why would he say why would he say that if it if in his mind it wouldn't even though it's a C one C agreement, even though everybody knows that it's ten years why would he say that if it, if it wasn't going to matter in his mind at least a little bit?
4: I think that that statement needs to be taken in context with everything that came before where he repeatedly said the guidelines didn't matter and, that, and found the, that this was reasonable regardless of the guidelines. The factors that he cites in finding that this sentence was reasonable were not tethered to the guidelines. It was the 3553A factors. And then after that statement, which is a little unclear and, and puzzling, um, he says to Mr. Jones, "You've waived your right to appeal." Judge Drain clearly thought that this was not going to come up on appeal. It turns out the appeal waiver does not preclude this appeal, but he, I, I think it's fair to, to from all of his statements to assume he didn't contemplate that this was actually going to come to the court in this case. So he was just
3: saying, "Come back, go ahead, try to go to the Court of Appeals, come back if it changes, thinking to himself, but I know that you waived your right to appeal, so I'm not saying anything because you're not coming back. I think
4: the, the judges are, are very aware that this is, a, an issue, as I've said, is percolating uh, in very in different cases. So it could be well being that he meant to, to Mr. Martin, uh, you know, if, if it's some other case you get a different ruling, I'll, you know, reconsider the But, I mean,
3: issue. I mean, hasn't the court said, I mean, regardless of what the judge here said, you have to calculate the guidelines Right before you even on a C one C agreement, they have to be calculated correctly. I mean, right? I mean, (laughs) otherwise it doesn't make sense. So, I mean, why why would it be harm? I I guess I'm not. I don't know. I I find I find this case a little bit odd because I guess do you agree or do you have a view on whether the defendant could, uh, if we were to reverse? Could the defendant get out of the plea? I mean, would, would the defendant have to move to withdraw the plea? I mean, they're not, he's not entitled to a resentence, is he? I mean, I assume your position is he's still bound by the contract or the original agreement that's, that's 10 years, regardless of what the guideline range ends up being?
4: Well, the, the plea agreement specifically provides that if the sentence is vacated, if the judgment of the district court is vacated, or if, uh, Mr., um, um, Jones argues for anything less than a ten-year sentence that the government can withdraw from the plea agreement. So we will have to wait and see uh, what. So the So if we were
3: to be. vacate the sentence because we thought uh, that the guideline range was inaccurate or improperly calculated, that would that
4: would vitiate the plea agreement potentially. And if Mr. Um, if Jones – and that's the odd thing about this is he's essentially trying to have it both ways, right? He, he doesn't – he's never – even today is still not said when tracked directly by the court if he intends to withdraw from the plea agreement. He's never done that. Instead, he wants to undermine – he wants the district court to essentially do for him what he cannot ask the court to do directly, and that is give him less than a 10-year sentence. Um, and so if if it – depending on how the court rules on this case – if uh if it says that he cannot get uh or if he can withdraw from his plea agreement or leads to him asking for less than a ten year sentence, that the, the government absolutely can withdraw and reinstate the felon in possession charge with a potential fifteen year mandatory minimum sentence.
0: Right, there's that.
4: There is. All right,
2: counsel, can you briefly address the enhancement as to the recklessness of creating substantial risk of bodily harm in the course of fleeing from police officers? So I, I, I see the enhancement as applying when the fleeing begins. I think the fleeing begins after he fired the shot. And what, I mean, what did he do after he started to flee to create the substantial risk? risk of bodily harm. So the,
4: so the facts that um, the district court, and, I, and, and it's, it's clear that the parties agree that the, really the only question is, uh, do the facts that were presented at the district court, are they sufficient to apply this this uh, uh, guidelines enhancement? The facts are that uh, the police were called. They arrived at the scene. They saw Mr. Jones with a gun firing and then he ran into the house, as Judge Nelbany, I think, pointed out earlier, or it might have been you, Judge Griffin, I, that he must have had the gun with him as he went into the house. Okay, so is the recklessness in creating
2: the substantial risk of bodily harm the fact that he still has the gun? Yes, and that's supported okay, by so both... So anybody that flees with a gun is subject to this enhancement? Is, is that is what, what rule are we going to make in here, this case, if we... Had, affirm this enhancement that's what i want to know
4: i don't think the court needs to make a new rule it needs to just apply what the courts already said in mukes and brooks which is where if the police see an offender fleeing with a gun which is it's fair to make that inference in this case given that he, the police saw him shoot the gun that that creates a risk that they will fire open fire and potentially injure bystanders or other officers and both brooks and mukes make that point in, in their reply brief uh, mr. Jones says that there's no evidence of bystanders and points okay, to so you any,
2: anybody is it anybody with a gun that flees is subject to this enhancement or anybody who has fired a gun before the police arrive and then flees with a gun I mean is, is, is that what it is
4: I think I think the, the rule is if the police see a person fleeing with a gun okay, the, the, rule the enhancement came. talks about in the course of
2: fleeing right so, I mean, it's not in the course of what what applies until he starts fleeing, and that
4: right. he hasn't fled at that point, right? But he had the gun. As they arrived, they saw him shoot, so they know he has a gun. Unlike some of the other cases that they relied on, the police actually see him with the gun and then see him flee. And so at that point, it's really just a straightforward application of these other cases in which that was not the case. Okay, uh, so that it's not, that he doesn't have to have the barricading the house too, or is that? I think that that all plays into, I mean, it, we're trying to, to state a broad rule, but the court, the question is do all the facts that were presented to the court in this case justify uh, application of the enhancement? And the fact that he had fired a gun in the presence of the police, was running from them with the gun certainly um, points to what this court has approved or talked about in Mukes uh, and the Brooks case uh, is a, a theory of reckless endangerment that this court has adopted that the police could open fire in that instance and cause a substantial risk of injury to us. All right. Thank you very much. Any further questions? Thank you. Yeah. All right. Rebuttal, three minutes.
1: Thank you. I'd like to briefly address the issue of judicial notice um, that the government began with. Um, importantly, the government's motion for judicial notice here only asked for the court to take notice of the Shepard documents regarding Mr. Jones' uh, prior conviction in state court. The expert testimonies, the records from other district court cases, are are indeed factual analyses that are happening that are not properly before this court. They weren't presented in the district court. Uh, Mr. Jones didn't have an opportunity to respond to any of that. And I think we need not look far to understand why um, that is not an appropriate basis for this court to rule on the factual question of what, is, uh, what, what heroin isomers are and are not included in Michigan and federal drug schedules. Um, the government cites to yeah.
3: – I mean, is that a fact question or a legal question?
1: I think it's one first of statutory interpretation, but, yes, but where the government has introduced kind of warring expert, uh, testimonies, expert declarations, it becomes a factual question. What is a,
3: you can have, you can have experts on the law, right? We don't usually do that, but I mean, it's possible.
1: It, it may be possible, um.
3: I mean, what's the fact, what is the fact it's just a question of organic chemistry, whether this is the same thing as this, or whether you are evaluating, given what these two things are, whether they are effectively the same. I mean, that is that the question?
1: I think that Mr. Jones argues, um, and, and we would argue here, that the court need only look to what Congress wrote. And Congress knew the difference between optical, geometric, and positional isomers. It used the terms in different sections of the drug schedules. And we don't need to look further to know that it's broad, Michigan law is broader than federal law. However, the government has asserted for the first time on appeal, never in the district court on this case, that um, isomers, as used in the federal drug schedules, are the same as derivatives. And I think that's where the factual question comes in. None of that uh, was was presented in the district court. It's not properly before this court. And so our position is we would need a remand in order to, to address that question. I, I wanted to, um, also address the, the guidelines that they matter. I understand I'm out of time, um, in about 20 seconds, but, um, these guidelines follow, follow people. So Mr. Jones does need a correct calculation of the guidelines in the district court, um, Even if he ends up with the same 120 month sentence. And I don't think this court has to answer the question about what will happen with the plea. That's for the district court to decide once the guidelines have been properly calculated and those guidelines will follow him for the rest of his sentence.
2: Okay, any further questions? Judge Cook, Judge Napani. Thank you very much. These will be submitted.